So, uh, good morning again. Uh, today is Christ the King Sunday, which does not mean a lot to many people here. Many of us haven't grown up in a tradition that keeps track of a church calendar. Um, and our church doesn't believe the calendar is essential for salvation or anything like that. But throughout the history of the church, it's been the best way for Christians to enter over and over again into the life and ministry of Christ. And, and the point of that, of entering over and over again into the pivotal moments in Christ's life, is that in this repeated way, this rhythm of year after year, we're going through this, this calendar of Christ's life and ministry. We're trying, with God's help, to map our lives onto Christ's life, or his life onto our life, rather. And so I want to frame for you this big picture of what our calendar tries to do. So the calendar starts each year at Advent, four weeks before Christmas, which is next Sunday, right? And we begin the year in waiting, reflecting on the lengthy time that God's people waited for the Messiah and were formed in that waiting. And then we celebrate the, the fulfillment of this waiting at Christmas when Christ is born, and then we walk through the rest of the major movements in his life. So when he's revealed to the nations in Epiphany as the king of the nations of the world, his temptation in the wilderness and his ministry in Lent, and then his death and resurrection in Holy Week and Easter, his sending of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, and then ordinary time, which we've been in for a very long time now, is the lengthiest of the seasons. There are all these kinds of jokes among preachers about how long ordinary time is. And it's rightly so, because ordinary time focuses on now, Christ's ministry in the present through the church. And the present always feels like the longest time, doesn't it? Now the year culminates today in Christ the King. Because today, we reflect on Christ's final return when he will come in glory as the king over all his creation. So again, this is the big picture. We begin at Advent waiting for the Christ to arrive a first time. And then we conclude today looking forward to when Christ comes again in his glory. Now that final coming is the focus of this passage that we just listened to in Matthew chapter 25. And we're going to walk through this passage with one question in mind. What kind of king is Jesus? Now, I always have different versions of the sermon. There's like the 30, 45, or hour-long version, 45-minute or hour-long version. And then there's the version that hopefully you guys get, which is a little bit shorter than that. This passage is so dense and rich. All of them are dense and rich. This passage, I would love to sit down with you for an hour or more. And talk through all the levels. And after we're done, you're still going to have questions. I, I, there is literally a version of the sermon that I'm not preaching right now. As a kindness to you and especially those of you with children. But there are lots of important things. That being said, there are lots of important things I'm not going to say. What I've tried to do is condense it to the, what I think are the most important factors within this passage. So what kind of king is Jesus? And, and really there's just one point. Jesus is an incarnational king. He is an incarnational king. The incarnation is a, a rich mystery. But at least part of what it means is that Christ emptied himself. Not that Christ renounced his divinity in some kind of Disney story kind of thing. 
renounced it and then took it back. He didn't renounce his divinity, but he humbled himself and he took on our, our humanity within his divinity. His divinity became one with our humanity. So a key passage for this is Philippians chapter 2. And this was actually an early Christian hymn. Christ did now not count equality with God something to be grasped. In, in other words, to be held on to tightly. But instead he emptied himself. He poured himself out, taking on the form of a servant. Now in this vision in Matthew 25 of the end of time, Jesus goes a step further in helping us understand his oneness with humanity in the incarnation. He not only in identifies himself with humanity in general, but he identifies himself with people in particular. His people. So he says to one group, now I want to say this real quick. There's the groups of the sheep and the goats. Now, it's not as if sheep in the Bible are bad, uh, good and goats are bad. There, were, there wasn't like discrimination against goats in the Bible. I mean, it's always better to be a lamb, right? But in general, sweeping terms, it's not as if sheep are, are good and lambs are bad. It, it's just, this is just the, the names that he uses to talk about the, these groups. As a shepherd separates sheep from goats, this is what he was going to do at the end of time. So he says to one group, come. You who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And then Jesus lists all these kinds of deprivations that people experienced that this group cared for those people in. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison. And you came to me. And then to this other group, he says, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And Jesus repeats the same lists of actions, of deprivations, but he said, You did not do these things for me, to me. Now, here is what I think is the most interesting part of this passage in both cases the people who did this for Jesus, to Jesus, and the people who didn't. Neither of the groups realize it was Jesus they were dealing with. Neither of them. Even those who did minister to Jesus ask him, when did we do those things for you? And he answers, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Now, it's easy in today's climate our Western world, where we live, and the news that we hear, it's easy to hear this list of deprivations, the hungry, thirsty, so on, and think Jesus is talking about social justice, about caring for the poor. That's, that's where our minds go because of the culture that we live in, the world that we live in. And there are groups of Christian churches that have jettisoned a lot of the traditional theology of the church, but have kept passages like this, suggesting this is where the real gospel is to be found. And our entire secular culture in the Western world is feeding piecemeal off the storehouses of Christianity and its approach to the poor. People love this part of Christianity. Now, what I want to do is show you that what Jesus means by caring for the poor is part of a larger puzzle of wholeness 
and flourishing. And when you start taking pieces out of the puzzle, the puzzle doesn't fit. It doesn't work any longer. It starts to crumble. So a key phrase in this passage is, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Who are Jesus's brothers? Well, if you really want to know the answer to that question, you just need to read the rest of the gospel of Matthew. You need to start at the beginning and read all the way through up to this point. Jesus never uses the language in a vague, general way or in our modern sense of the universal brotherhood of all humanity, all men and women. He doesn't use it in that way. Jesus says things like, whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Another similar comment is Matthew chapter 10, when he says, whoever gives to one of these little ones, so he says the least of these in Matthew 25, little ones in Matthew chapter 10, these are equivalent terms, whoever gives to one of them even a cup of cold water, because he is my disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. Here's what Jesus is doing in Matthew 25. He's expanding on a theme that he's spoken on repeatedly leading up to this. Then that theme is this. To follow or preach Jesus boldly and uncompromisingly in the world and to embody Jesus' virtues is guaranteed to lead you to ostracism and persecution. This is the one thing that Jesus promised besides his own abiding presence with his disciples. That if you follow me, you will be persecuted. In the world, he says in John chapter 16, you will have trouble. So Jesus forewarned us that following him would lead to something that resembles his own cross. Take up your cross and follow me. It would lead to being hungry, thirsty, to feeling like a stranger in the world, to lacking clothing, to sickness, to imprisonment. Now, here, here's, this is fascinating. This list in Matthew chapter 25 is almost identical in places to the Apostle Paul's list of his own deprivations because his, of his ministry of the gospel. Go read 2 Corinthians chapter 11, where Paul lists his deprivations that he experiences because of his faithfulness to Jesus Christ. He says he was in danger everywhere. In the city, in the wilderness, anywhere he went, he was in danger. In toil and in hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and in thirst, often without food, in cold and in exposure. Now here's the first thing I'm saying to you about all of this. Jesus is an incarnational king. And what that means is that Jesus has shown us what it looks like to serve him as human beings And this is what it looks like. It looks like a cross. That is what it looks like. We've had it easy for a while in America, fellow Christians. We've had it easy. And and I'm not telling you you need to get defensive. I'm not telling you you need to become scared or start putting up some walls or barriers to people. But we need to start paying more attention to our brothers and sisters in other places who have always had to suffer for their faith. That is normative. Here's the second thing I'm saying to you. When you suffer because you follow Jesus, 
Jesus suffers with you. Jesus says, when you do those things to my brothers, you're doing it to me. And this isn't mere rhetoric that Jesus is using. He has made himself one with his people. This mystery is so deep, we can't get to the bottom of it. So when Paul, formerly Saul, was persecuting the church, what did Jesus say to him when he revealed himself from, in that blinding light from heaven? He says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? This is not mere rhetoric. Paul learned that Jesus is one with his people. So later Paul says, I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. Christ identifies himself with his people. He is one with you when you suffer for him because of faithfulness to him. Now, does this mean that Christians should only care for their own? Absolutely not. Love your neighbor as you love yourself, Christian or not. The fact is that none of us can peer deeply enough into the soul of another person to know exactly what's there. You don't know for certain when you might be entertaining angels, ministering to Christ and another person. Remember, in this story, both neither groups know. So I'm not saying you limit it to brothers and sisters in Christ. But, I, but this is the primary meaning of this passage. When your brother or sister suffers because of their faithfulness to Jesus, you should be with them in it because Christ is suffering too. And you need to be aware. One of the tools of the enemy is to divide the people of God against one another. And we live right now in a culture of what's been called virtue signaling. What that means is that everyone is trying to show everyone else they are more compassionate and more loving. And when the people of God stand on the fullness of the gospel in Christ, which is the universal call to repentance and new life in Christ, that virtue signaling is going to turn on us. When we stand on the fullness of the gospel in Christ, the care for the poor, but also the repentance that goes along with following Jesus and the new kind of life that is called forth by Christ, we will eventually become the unloving, those lacking in compassion. And when those moments come, you can't stand to the side hoping to avoid the conflict. You can't. You have to step in and care for the people of Jesus who are battered and bruised for their faithfulness to the king. What kind of king is Jesus? He's an incarnational king. Jesus becomes one with his people in their suffering. Now Christ, he is triumphant. He comes in glory when he returns. But on the road to triumph, Christ is repeatedly humiliated before the world. And at the end of time, we're all going to be judged by a glorious king who signals his sentence with a pierced right hand. He will signal his sentence on humanity with pierced hands. You see this. Triumph always comes through suffering. It's a hand that was pierced for you. It's a hand that was pierced for the world, 
for our forgiveness, for our redemption, so that we might become children of God and serve him for the renewal of the world. Lay our lives down in love for the world. Here's the question this vision presents for us. How are we serving Christ in each other? If Christ is one with you, then a way that I serve Christ is by serving you. How are we serving Christ in each other? How are we serving Christ in each other's weakness, in each other's loneliness, in each other's deprivation, whatever that may be? Particularly right now, we're about to move into a season that could be very bleak. And we need to look around us often. We need to take account of the people that we haven't seen or heard from in a while. Look, there are going to be people who uh, we're not going to see who aren't able to get out for a long time. And we don't need to wait for someone to contact us. We need to seek each other out. We need to take responsibility for ourselves and for each other. Don't wait for someone to do it for you. Start. Check in on each other. We can't always visit each other when we're in our COVID prisons. We can't always do that. But we can hear each other's voices and we can still minister to each other. Uh, We have brothers and sisters in Uganda right now that we are keeping up with. And, you know, it doesn't always look explicitly like it's their faithfulness to Christ that's creating their suffering. But it is in Christ that they're suffering right now because uh, the lockdown is having a, an even deeper impact on those who are already poor. Now, you know, we sometimes say things like, you know, we, we can't always just repeatedly give and give and give. And one thing that I want to say to you is that, and, and that from this passage is, it is always a risk to give. And not to give. And the risk that you take in not giving and in serving someone for Christ is that you might miss out an opportunity to serve Christ himself. Because Christ is in his people. I know that many of us don't feel like we're suffering for our faith right now. And, you know, I, I've poured over this passage all week and I've tried to wrestle through, Jesus, what, what is it that you want us to hear in this? And, and I guess what I'm trying to say to you is, it might not be happening now, but if you're faithful to Christ, it will happen. And so begin to look now toward the people who have been experiencing this, who can teach you what it means to survive and to be faithful to Christ on that path. And be looking to each other. Hold each other up. The only way that we are going to survive this and be faithful to Christ is if we are faithful to each other on this journey. So, let me invite you to pray with me. Lord Christ, we thank you for being one with us in our humanity. For dying for us. For suffering on the path to your triumph. 
We thank you for giving us each other so that we can become your tangible presence to one another. And we ask you now that you would help us, that you would fill us with your spirit to bear your fruit, to minister to each other in your name as if we are ministering to you, Lord Jesus. Thank you for the dignity that you give us in all our weakness through your love and through your glory. It's in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.